Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This episode is going to include horrendous crimes against other humans. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Appreciate it. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Music throughout the 20th century defined generations. The popular, or pop music, at the time was usually whatever the teenage or young adults were listening to, and personal status was often defined by what device they used when they listened to said pop music. In the 1930s, people were looking to advance the science of sound and the concept of high fidelity was born. The music industries and film industries were driven to produce a better sound for their audiences. World War II slowed those advances during the early 40s, but many advancements during and after the war propelled the quality of sound even higher. This included reel-to-reel tape recording, a technology developed by the Germans and then shared with the sound industry after their defeat. The invention of long play or LP vinyl records meant more music could be stored on a single record and created the vinyl record craze. FM radio was introduced that sounded more clear and was less susceptible to signal loss than AM. And finally, improvements in speaker design allowed for more bass and cleaner sound. By 1974, semiconductors had replaced vacuum tubes and sound equipment could be made smaller, cheaper, and more available to the masses. The market was flooded with a mix of Western brands and Japanese brands as Japan had been forced to focus on an economy based on technological sales because it was banned from military investment after World War II. The resulting demand for sound equipment led to many stores dedicated to sound and electronics opening all over the country. Some were chains, such as Tech Hi-Fi and Stereo Lab, but some of the shops were single-owner shops run by a family or a few buddies who pooled their money together. The Hi-Fi shop in Ogden, Utah was one of those shops. In 1974, it served the city of Ogden and its roughly 70,000 people. The city had grown rapidly in the late 1800s as it was situated on the east side of the Great Salt Lake and had one of the major east-to-west railroad lines running through the town. Many people traveling to San Francisco area would stop in or pass through the city. Ogden was situated just north of Hill Air Force Base, a major maintenance base for fighter aircraft. The base was originally designed to maintain, repair, and salvage many World War II aircraft, during and after the war, and in the 1960s it was selected to continue its mission but with jet aircraft such as the F-4 Phantom, which saw service during the Vietnam War. The base was still very busy in 1974 as the Vietnam War was still active and the Cold War was in full effect. Ogden was the second largest city in Utah at the time, and the combination of a large population of youth and a military base meant it was the perfect location to start selling audio equipment. But on the evening of April 22nd, 1974, things were going to take a horrific turn for many people at the Hi-Fi shop. Just before closing time on that fateful night, several men drove to the Hi-Fi shop in Ogden, Utah, with robbery on their mind. 
Reports state up to six men drove to the shop, but ultimately only three men will be charged and brought to trial for the crimes. So for the sake of keeping things easy to follow, we will focus on the known suspects and their actions whenever possible. Four men entered the shop armed with handguns while two waited in nearby vans as getaway drivers. Although stereo equipment had gotten smaller, this was still the 1970s and well before the invention of small music players and Bluetooth speakers. The most valuable items were large audio receivers, players, and speakers, and none of that equipment was considered small. It would take a lot of space to move a valuable amount of items back in 1974. When the men came into the store, there were two employees working, Stanley Walker, a 20-year-old male, and Michelle Ansley, an 18-year-old female. The suspects took the two hostage and two of the suspects, men that were later identified as Dale Pierre and William Andrews, brought them into the basement of the store at gunpoint. The hostages were tied up and then the four men began grabbing equipment from the store. During the robbery, a 16-year-old boy named Courtney Nesbitt walked into the store to thank Walker for letting him park his car in the store's parking lot. He had been running an errand at a nearby store that didn't have a parking lot. Nesbitt had unknowingly stumbled across the robbery in progress, and he too was taken at gunpoint into the basement and bound like the other two. It must have taken a while to load the equipment, because eventually Stanley Walker's father, Orrin Walker, showed up on scene to find out why his son hadn't come home after his shift ended. Orrin walked into the robbery that was still going on and was immediately taken hostage. Carol Nesbitt, Courtney's mother, also arrived around this time to see why her son hadn't returned home from running errands. She was forced downstairs with the walkers, Michelle, and her son. All the hostages were tied up, and now the robbers had to figure out what to do with them. The suspect named Pierre told his cohort, Andrews, to go get something from the van. Upon returning with a brown paper bag that looked like a liquor store bag with a bottle in it, Pierre took the bag and poured some of the liquid into a cup. Pierre ordered Oren Walker to make the others drink it, but Orrin refused, so he was gagged and left face down on the floor, still tied up. The two suspects then sat up the other four hostages and told them the liquid was vodka laced with sleeping pills that would knock them out so the robbers would have time to get away. The liquid was in fact Drano, and when the hostages took a sip of the liquid, they immediately began suffering from extreme pain as blisters formed on their lips, flesh peeled from their mouths, and they suffered chemical burns to their tongues and throats. Upset that the hostages were screaming and spitting out the Drano, the suspects tried to tape their mouths shut, but the adhesive wouldn't stick to the badly injured lips. Oren was the last to have to drink the liquid, and he didn't swallow it, but started faking convulsions that allowed him to expel the liquid out of his mouth. Upset that the deaths weren't quiet or instantaneous as they had expected them to be, Pierre decided to start shooting the hostages. He shot Carol and Courtney Nesbitt in the back of the head, Carol would eventually die from this gunshot, but Courtney miraculously survived this execution attempt. Pierre then took a shot at Oren, missed, and turned his gun to Stanley and shot him in the head once, killing him and then turned the gun back on Oren, and fired a shot that hit Oren in the head, but it was more of a glancing impact. Believing all the hostages except for Michelle were dead, Pierre took Michelle to the far corner of the basement and made her remove her clothing. He then repeatedly sexually assaulted Michelle for around 30 minutes before he drug her back to the other hostages and fatally shot her in the head. After killing Michelle, they noted that Oren was still alive. 
Pierre, possibly out of bullets at this time, tried to strangle Orrin with some wire, but failed. He then grabbed a ballpoint pen and stuck it in Orrin's ear and stomped on it. The pen would puncture Orrin's eardrum before breaking and exiting out his throat. Confident all the hostages were dead, Pierre and Andrews went back upstairs and finished loading stuff into the van and then left. Three hours later, Orrin's wife and her other son came to see why Orrin and Stanley had both not returned. The store was locked, but they could hear noises coming from the basement, and Orrin's son broke down the store's back door to gain entry. While he was breaking down the, st- the door, Mrs. Walker called the police to report that something wasn't right. It was then that Orrin's son discovered the hostages. Stanley Walker, his brother, and Michelle Ansley were obviously deceased, but Carol could still have been alive and was rushed by ambulance to a nearby hospital, but she was pronounced dead on arrival. Courtney and Orrin were also rushed to the hospital. Orrin would make close to a full recovery, and Courtney, although not expected to live, survived the gunshot but had permanent brain damage. The discovery of the crime caused a local media explosion, and within hours, an anonymous employee at Hill Air Force Base phoned police and told them he had heard William Andrews, an airman on the base, talking about robbing the hi-fi shop and killing anyone who gets in his way. Shortly after this call, two boys were dumpster diving near the base and came across purses and wallets belonging to the victims, complete with photo IDs. The boys recognized the names on the IDs as victims of the robbery and homicide and called police. In what was almost a made-for-bad-TV moment, the responding detective, feeling that an airman was responsible for the crime and seeing a large crowd of airmen gathering at the dumpster scene, made a huge show out of what he was finding for the crowd to see. He would grab an item out of the dumpster with tongs before waving it in the air. He claimed most of the airmen had no response to these theatrics, but two airmen were seen pacing around, talking loudly, and making frantic gestures. Those two airmen were Dale Pierre and William Andrews. Between the phone call regarding Andrews' comments and their behavior at the scene, police decided to arrest Andrews and Pierre that evening. Another airman, Keith Roberts, was also suspected of being involved and he was arrested soon after. Police obtained a search warrant for their barracks and found flyers for the hi-fi shop and a rental contract for a storage locker. A second search warrant was done for the storage locker and stolen items from the hi-fi shop, matched by serial number and a half-empty bottle of Drano, were found in the storage locker. When news of the arrest hit, there was a lot of racial tension in the town after the murders. Almost all of the black citizens reported being pulled over for no reason and having to put up with racist remarks. While they understood that what Pierre and Williams had done was horrible, the suspects were not from the area, and the citizens felt the hostile mood at the time from the police and fellow citizens was more than uncalled for. Due to the heinous nature of the case and the amount of media coverage, the defense requested and was granted a change of venue for the trial. Instead of being tried in Ogden, the county seat for Weber County, the trial was moved to neighboring Davis County. The trial began on October 15, 1974, just six months after the crimes, and lasted for a month. Orrin Walker testified, but Courtney Naisbitt could not because he was still recovering and had amnesia as a result of the brain damage. Prosecutors used Williams' statements that he had planned to rob the store and kill anyone they encountered as the motive for all that happened that night. 
the crew stole $24,000 worth of stereo equipment, the equivalent of $150,000 today. Prior to the robbery, they had researched ways to kill people quickly and quietly and had watched Magnum Force, the second Dirty Harry movie, and in the movie, a prostitute is made to drink Drano, and she dies instantly, so they decided to kill their hostages with Drano. We'll step away from the story here, mainly because there's, there's a lot to get out in that story, and this is from 1974, so there's maybe four or five articles that are available that cover this crime, and I, obviously it's the extreme heinous nature of the crime that has kept it in cultural reference, I guess, to this point. So it's not gonna, there's not gonna be a whole lot to break down about the crime. I mean, some of it almost seems surreal. I'm not just talking about the horrendous nature of the crime. I'm talking about the, the theatrics of waving stuff around outside of the dumpster and having the two airmen responsible for that walking around and making gestures and speaking loudly. I mean, if I watched a, a bad 1970s cop show, that's something I would expect to see on there, not something in real life, but according to the reports, that's what happened. Then you have the almost perfect evidence trail where you've got a search warrant of the barracks, which I was actually kind of questioning whether or not police need a search warrant for barracks. I guess they do because it's an area that's locked and it's considered private, but at the same time it's government property. So I I don't know how that was handled. And I also don't know, like now it, this would be handled by like security forces with the Air Force or at least the military or in the Army, it's a CID. And I know that crime didn't happen on the base but it involves military members so it didn't mention anything about cooperation between the local police and any type of base security i assume there must have been some type of cooperation but at the same time again there's just not a whole lot of details about it so what we have here is again just this horrendous crime and then the whole thing about there being six guys now i did see in the evidence that eventually four guns were recovered and then eventually destroyed i think it was back just a few years ago when they were going through and tossing out evidence from this case it was really confusing that supposedly there's these two vans supposedly there was two getaway drivers and four guys that went into the store but only three guys one getaway driver and and these two guys were ever charged and it makes me wonder if there ever was six guys involved and maybe Pierre and Williams both had two guns because in one article I read it was handguns and then another article I read it said that Pierre had a shotgun so again it's one of those things where I'm trying to report it as close to what I can find in the majority of articles it just to me it doesn't seem like one of those crimes where three people get away with it and they're never mentioned or never located or or anything like that this is a pretty serious crime for three guys to to never be charged with especially when you do find half of that number and charge them it may it just makes me think that all along this was this three-man crew all of them were airmen and because that makes me question they're not from the area so they're not going to have any other local 
people that are in on this crime. So the other three probably would have been airmen as well, also on the base. And that makes me again think that having me having served in the military, I know how guys within a unit will talk. And that's how one of the guys had already turned in Williams because he had heard him talking about doing this robbery and killing anybody that they came across. So the if there was three other airmen involved, I highly doubt that they wouldn't have at least been named, if not also charged. It's just not the way things normally go. So again, this is a 50-year-old case at this point, or, or almost 50-year-old case, I guess. It'll be 50, 50 next year. And that just makes me think that some stuff might have been misreported or exaggerated or however you want to say it back in the day and we just don't have the reports or accurate stuff to go back through and, and fix it but anyway that it's it's kind of a moot point and it's just one of those things where as i'm reading through these articles and the wikipedia page and that kind of stuff it just leaves me scratching my head thinking some of this stuff doesn't make sense but a lot of it does the fact that they watch this movie where of course, in the movie, the prostitute drinks the Drano and she just dies this quiet, instant death because that fits the movie plot. And these guys not understanding that maybe that's not how it works in real life decide to make these victims try to drink this Drano, which, again, caused some horrendous immediate chemical burns and... And then these guys are upset because what they expected to happen was these guys just to do what the prostitute did in the movie and just die quietly and quickly. That's not happening. So now they have to go to plan B, which is shooting people in the head. And that's where I think the reason he tried to strangle Orin at the end, it didn't say that he ran out of bullets, but I, I have to think that he did because why would you go to the effort of trying to strangle somebody with a wire and then... You know, stomp a bolt, ballpoint pen into their head if instead you can just put a gun up to his head and pull the trigger you've already done it to several people you thought you did it to him but it, it just seems like unnecessary attempts to kill somebody if you still have bullets so that just made me think that Pierre was the only one that shot maybe he was the only one that had a loaded weapon and maybe he'd run out of bullets at that point and that's why Oren survived, and he's able to point out his attackers. And that's the other thing I didn't see in here. There was no mention of them wearing masks. And I, I know I've heard this in a podcast before, somebody covering this case. And I can't remember if they talked about these guys wearing masks or not. But if their plan was to go in there the whole time and kill anybody inside, I assume they weren't wearing masks. So that would make the fact that Oren survived, it'd be pretty easy for him to identify his two attackers. So, again, this was a planned out crime to a certain degree. At the same time, thing, and even Pierre, I think, would later admit that they just expected it would be the two hostages. They would make him drink Drano, and then they'd you know, have carte blanche to take everything out of the store at that point. And then when the unexpected third guy walks in and then the parents of two of the kids walk in suddenly things are out of control and their plan although ultimately it somewhat worked the way they expected it to 
you know, they didn't plan on leaving anybody alive. So, so now we'll get into the suspects themselves. And I figure the best way to cover the suspects was to cover both what we know about them and then what happened in the trial with them, their convictions and, and their sentences, all kind of stuff at once. So, uh, Dale Selby Pierre was born in Trinidad and Tobago and moved to New York City at the age of 17. He joined the Air Force a year later and was assigned to Hill Air Force Base as a helicopter mechanic. Almost immediately upon arrival at the Air Force Base, he had been the subject of an unrelated murder investigation. A sergeant on base named Edward Jefferson was hanging out with Pierre when he noticed that the keys to his apartment and his car were missing. Pierre helped him look for the keys, but they were gone. However, the next day, Pierre returned to continue the search and miraculously the keys were found. Jefferson suspected Pierre had taken the keys the entire time and made a duplicate set so he could burglarize the apartment and steal his car. This would later be confirmed with records of the keys being duplicated, which these would have been military keys and they needed, would have needed to be duplicated on base and the military rec records everything were found for a non-existent service member going by the name Curtis Alexander. Although that wouldn't be discovered till later, Jefferson was suspicious enough to change the locks on his apartment and in his car, and he confronted Pierre about the theft and duplication. Sometime shortly after that, Jefferson was killed via bayonet. Pierre was the number one suspect in the case, but there was no direct evidence linking him to the crime. Pierre would be arrested sometime later after he was caught stealing a car from a Salt Lake City car dealer, and he was out on bail when he committed the Hi-Fi murders. On November 16, 1974, Pierre was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated robbery. There was no mention of charges for the sexual assault, and he was sentenced to death for his crimes. So just to expand a little bit on Pierre... Apparently, he, while he was growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, he had a reputation for being someone that got what he wanted, and that was by force or anything else. So the way I read it is he was a bully, and a bully that wasn't afraid to use force to get what he wanted. And it's, although it's said in there that his parents weren't aware of the side of him, but then he moves off to New York at 17 and almost immediately joins the Air Force. And from the sounds like everywhere that he went, uh, his basic training and off to this Hill Air Force base, his personality was so abrasive and he was, he was just that guy that nobody wanted to be around. And then there's this incident with his, with his bayonet. And you guys don't know, bayonet is the knife that goes on the end of a rifle so that if you're in close quarters combat you can attach the bayonet to the end of your rifle and now you have essentially a spear you've got the rifle itself and then at the end of it you've got a very pointed knife blade and it actually goes around in a way that you can still fire the gun with it on it's not recommended because it's you're not going to be as accurate with the weight and stuff but it can be fired not going to damage anything but it's just it's designed to be a last minute way to defend yourself and most military bases guys aren't walking around with their weapons and ammo and, and anything like that so 
it wouldn't be that uncommon for somebody to improvise a weapon such as a bayonet that they've been issued to be used as a murder weapon and also there's likely going to be a bayonet as part of his standard issue for this sergeant jefferson who was killed so likely he was killed with his own bayonet but they said whoever killed him it was so much force that the bayonet was actually buried in the guy's skull and a lot of people afterwards especially with what happened with pierre with the hi-fi he had such a, a violent physical streak to him i guess is one way to put it that people immediately if they weren't already believing that pierre killed sergeant jefferson after the hi-fi murders they definitely felt he was one of the few people that they knew that could have committed that much violence against sergeant jefferson so he was never charged with that even after these hi-fi murders he wasn't looked at as far as i could tell a second time for for the murders or question about it or anything like that but i just found it interesting that it was basically almost immediately upon arriving at this guy's apartment and they were copying cassette tapes or something like that which was like a brand new or pretty brand new I guess audio technology at the time cassette tapes are just coming into into fashion in the the early 70s there so it's another tie between pierre going after this high-end stereo equipment and then killing jefferson after stealing his keys while messing around with high value stereo equipment so again uh that's kind of the breakdown on Pierre. Everybody said that they believed he was the muscle of the organization. There were comments that he was the kingpin of it, but then there's comments that William was the kingpin of it. So it just depends on which way you want to read that. And I remember that, and there was one point in which Orrin Walker stated that during the murders, Pierre was like dancing or prancing around after he pulled the the trigger each time so he was like celebrating the death so again this is a, a highly disturbed individual and I don't think a lot of people took issue with his arrest or his sentencing or his execution but we are going to see that come up with with William Andrews so uh, William Andrews was born in 1954 in Jonesboro Louisiana he was stationed at Hale Air Force Base in 1974 and was well-liked by his fellow airmen. However, when he befriended the angry and sullen Pierre, he lost most of his friends, and the two of them were ostracized due to Pierre's behavior. During the trial, it was brought to the jury's attention several times that Williams had made comments prior to the crimes about killing people at the hi-fi shop. His defense team would argue that Andrews was only 19 at the time, and he wasn't actually present when the shots were fired, although he did admit to making the victims drink the Drano. Williams was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated robbery and was sentenced to death. Many organizations and people advocated for clemency for Andrews, stating he didn't actually kill anyone, so he didn't deserve to die. Andrews was afforded several appeals, but those ran out in 1992, and he was executed on July 30th of 1992. This was actually deemed to be a very risky choice because L.A. had just experienced the worst riots in the city's history after the acquittal of the four officers and the beating of Rodney King, and many people feared putting a black man to death 
just a month or two after that would incite more riots. However, the decision was made to go forward. And the only other person charged with the crimes was Keith Roberts. He was the getaway driver and was not in the store near the hostages and was not identified by the survivors as being involved in the deaths of the three others. So he was charged with aggravated robbery and sentenced to five years to life and served 13 years before being paroled in 1987. He committed suicide in 1992, a week after Andrews was executed. The decision to execute Andrews still causes controversy today. Many see it as a racial injustice and point to the fact that there are no black jurors to decide his fate. While this is true, it's also important to note that jury selection must occur from the area, and at the time, the area was less than 1% African American. There had been one black member of the jury pool, but he was excused because he had been a police officer in Ogden and knew too many people involved in the investigation. Because of the brutal nature of this case, it's a rally cry for both sides of the death penalty argument. And this is very similar, I guess, in terms of the Chester Pogue case is... In that case, you've got one guy who seemed to be the ringleader, and that was uh, Elijah Page in that case. And he kind of corresponds to Pierre in this case in terms of like their level of violence, and they were the ones that administered most of the of the deadly attacks and that kind of stuff. And you have this other guy that's kind of claiming to be along for the ride to a certain degree and the the main guy doesn't put up much of a fight and he's executed and then you've got a bunch of people saying this other guy wasn't really as involved he didn't actually pull the trigger he didn't you know do any of this stuff so he shouldn't be put to death and i think that's one of the problems with when you have these multiple suspects i mean we have a lot of people that are put to death that are single suspect killers or they're serial killers that acted alone and then i don't think there's as much of a question but when you get these cases where you have two guys how much of it comes to the responsibility of the other person to stop the guy that's killing the people and then the fact that you went along with it and in this case there's the testimony that williams was had premeditated the murders by telling people before this even happened that everybody in that store was going to die. So it's very difficult because the circumstances are different, but when you look at the cases, especially when there's multiple killers present, it does often cause a rally cry for both sides of the death penalty argument. And I, I'm guessing there probably wasn't as much issue with Pierre being put to death. I think it, it all falls on on William Andrews in this case. And that is the difficult thing because as far as I know, the people on the military base and, and, and the military has a much more diverse ethnic population to it, especially during the Vietnam time. There's gonna be a lot more minorities in the military. It's even the case today that, and, and these populations are shifting and they aren't representative of the area that they the base is located because like in this case this is a very mormon area of the united states and this is just 40 miles north of, of salt lake city it's it's a very very white demographic city and it was even more so in 1974 the only reason that 
Pierre and Andrews are, are in this city per se, they're on the base near the city, is because they're with the Air Force. So if the population doesn't have very many African Americans in it, and you can't go to the, Arm, the Air Force base and say, hey, give us six African Americans for this jury, I don't know where you're going to find the people that represent the, the, the community, because that's what it's supposed to be, is it's supposed to be a representation of that community. It can be equal male and female, but it's just going to be hard to, to do that. Now, I think they would probably do a better job of it today. I think they would make, make more of an effort to have a racially diverse jury in, in this case. Do I think it would have changed anything? I don't know. The, the one guy they did talk to afterwards, the, 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 the guy that was, uh, was in the jury pool, but then got excused. He actually wanted to be on the jury for this case, and he did say that he could be fair and impartial, but they were more worried about an appeal coming on the fact that he had been a police officer and knew a lot of the investigators on this case, and that would open up grounds for a, an unfair trial argument than it would be that he was sitting on the jury as a as a black male to that would then be less of an appeal about the racial stuff so again it's that was a situation kind of darned if you do darned if you don't because removing him from the jury makes it look like it's a racial thing leaving him on the jury opens up the appeal that he was a prior police officer and had knowledge of this so again these get but these do go through all these different appeals they're able to be looked at by judges all the way up to sometimes the supreme court to look over all the legalities of the case Every decision made by the judge in this case gets looked at with a microscope to see if there's any issues with the legality of the trial, of the sentencing, of the jury. And once those have all been exhausted, if the sentence is death, that person then is put to death. So again, I'm not, I'm not standing here trying to advocate and say that the death penalty works every time, we should use it all the time, and... and nor am I naive enough to realize there haven't been people put to death in this country that didn't deserve to be. But I think you have to take a somewhat moderate approach to it and realize that you have to take a fair look at all the facts concerning a case. You can't just look at the ones that support the pro-death penalty or the anti-death penalty. And again, a lot of the times we're talking about people that have been executed, whether it be the, the Chester Pogue case or now this one, the acts that they did, I mean, in, in the case of Pierre, to haul this 18-year-old girl off to the corner of, of this basement and sexually assault her for 30 minutes, to put her through all that and then to drag her back and just shoot her in the back of the head like, like she's an animal, like diseased animal is, I mean... If that doesn't call for the death penalty or what those guys did to Chester Pogue, again, I'd you would just have to be completely against the entire idea of the death penalty before you say that these people don't deserve it. And and that's fine. I'm not saying you can't be. That's your own choice. I'm just I'm just giving my two cents on these are some cases. I don't I don't choose the outcomes. I don't choose a lot of times when I when I start researching the case, I don't even know if the, the killers have been executed or not. I didn't know with this case. I know I'd heard it once on a podcast, but I couldn't tell you what the what the end result was. I thought this was an, one of those cases that maybe wasn't even solved from what I remembered. I think I was confusing it with uh, either Las Cruces bowling massacre or the yogurt shop murders. 
as those two are, th- are still both unsolved to this day, but very similar types of crimes, but those ones are unsolved, so I wouldn't cover them. And this one, I just checked real quick and went, oh, okay, yep, guys were captured as a result of this and put on trial. I didn't even know. So again, I'm not picking these because they have the death penalty or don't have the death penalty or whatever it may be. I'm just picking the case and covering it and then doing my best to break it down afterwards. So, but again, since I've now gone on a complete another tangent away from the story, I'll swing back real quick. Courtney Nasbat was able to return to high school and he did graduate, but he suffered from severe pain the rest of his life and struggled to hold the job. His case was actually cited as a driving force for victim rights in America and he died in 2002 at the age of 44. And I think the part about the victim's rights was prior to this, there wasn't a whole lot of support, I guess, for victims' rights or people seeing a reason why victims needed support, which which is a little shocking to me, but at the same time, there was a lot of uneducated approaches towards law and order and crime and victims and that kind of stuff at this time. So I guess it doesn't completely shock me but this would be your absolute poster child for a case where, I mean, the, the guy, I guess, was, he was in ICU for like 266 days. And for the majority of those days, the doctors told his father, because his mother had been killed, but told his father, just kind of expect him to die one of these days. Like he every day he entered with like a 50-50 chance of living or dying. And he just kept pulling through at every ter- turn they thought he was going to, he was going to die. He, he survived. So but he didn't do it without this severe brain damage which meant that he couldn't hold on a job and i think that was one of those things where you're the victim of this horrible crime and not only you know you survive so you have your life but you didn't ask to be shot in the head you didn't ask to have all this brain damage that is preventing you from living your life and the and somebody should be out there trying to help you get through your life and again i think that's where he's kind of seen as the first um, person that really caused a, uh, a push for victims' rights. And Oren Walker, the other surviving member of this ordeal, he died in 2000 at the age of 69. Now I'm actually going to list him as my hero for this story. Not that I don't think that Courtney Naisbet is, or even Oren's son that, that ran into that basement, because it sounds like he, you know, finding his brother dead down there and his father in, in really bad shape, it sounds like he had a pretty rough go of it psychologically after that. So th- there's other heroes, but when I look at Oren's story and I look at what happened to him and what it would take to see your own son killed and fight to stay alive so you can see justice delivered to these guys, I mean, that, that willpower is beyond me. He survived the Drano. He survived a gunshot to the head, a strangulation attempt, and having a ballpoint pen stomped into his ear. And to survive all that and then to get on the stand and testify against your attackers and your son's killers during the trial and then have to go on and live, live your life uh, without your son and I'm sure with some long-term issues as a result of this attack as well. People like that deserve to be recognized, and uh, so he's the hero of the story. So that is it for today. Uh, Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at truebluecrimeproductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.